Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and I'm here with Jeff Madoff, and this is our next episode of Anything and Everything, or is it Everything and Anything? Anyway, we talk about a lot of different things, and Jeff, we had a fascinating hour before we did this recording on just going into the marketplace and kind of working out how do you know what to actually present as a price for what it is that you're trying to do, even if you're going into the marketplace just to get a job, because it's essentially the same process, the same logic. But one of the things we were talking about, and we thought it deserved a fresh start with the podcast, was that actually if you approach the marketplace that you're actually the buyer, it actually gives you a much better framework of how to present yourself in the marketplace as a buyer, that you're buying something. And it twigged your interest, and we said, well, let's start fresh with this one. So what does that resonate with you when you say, why don't you approach it that you're actually the buyer? So I worked with Ralph Lauren for many years, and he did so many things, you know, starting with ties, then building a menswear business, then women's wear, then home furnishings, designing cars, just an incredible array of products you know, built a global multi-billion dollar company. And I said to him at one point, Ralph, how is it that you have had your finger on the pulse of the consumer so long and been able to build the business that you have? And he said, because I know what the consumer wants. Because I am the consumer. And that's what I had thought of when we were talking last time, because that was the essence of it, mm -hmm. you know, that he knew that he wasn't the only one that wanted X, you know, when he went to the movies and he saw the movie stars, you know, of the thirties and forties and fifties and Gary Cooper and Cary Grant, and he saw the peach lapel jackets and the wide ties and he wanted to dress like that. Weeps and cups. That's right. And he wanted to dress like that, but he never saw anything that looked quite as cool in mm -hmm. real life as it did in the movies. Mm -hmm. And he rightly imagined that he's not the only one mm -hmm. that would like to dress that way. Mm -hmm. And he was able to take that same sense because he always looked at, well, would I want to buy that? Mm-hmm. And so he had that duality of being able to sell it. But the main reason he could sell so effectively is because he wanted to buy it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The thing is that, you know, when I bring this up with entrepreneurs, well, how am I the buyer? And I said, well, why don't we just start with what you buy? You know, what are something that you buy that you place a lot of importance on that you get it right? when you're buying, what would it be? And they said, well, one of them is being served properly when I'm in a restaurant, in a store, at a hotel. And I said, yeah, so tell me about that. What tells you that you're being served properly? You know, And people have a list and they say, can you give me some examples of great places? you know, that you've been to, that you've stayed in as a hotel or you've gone and everything like that. And they have that very, very close to mine. And I said, well, as an entrepreneur, if that works for you as a customer, if you just took the behavior that you admire on the part of other entrepreneurs and just build it into a way you think that that would be a good thing. And he said, wow, what an idea. And I said, well, 
I think there's some biblical sayings about, you know, treating other people, you know. <laughs> and it's so funny. So I said, it's not really difficult. Just add up the scorecard with you for the things that you really love when you're the check writer and just apply your behavior and your results in the way that you treat other people that way. I know that the lesson doesn't come across because I've seen young people who really want to be taken seriously for what their talent is who treat other people badly. You know, they're rude or they don't listen or they make it all about themselves. They don't make it about the other person. And there's a disconnect between they want to be taken seriously, they want to be considered special, but they're not what I would say role modeling any of the behaviors about how they would like to be taken seriously. And it kind of puzzles me. But when I look back, there were dumb moments in my younger age. But I think that the area where I've made the greatest progress decade by decade, and I'm approaching 80, is that more and more, it's not about me. Interesting. You know, the trait that you just spoke about, the example you just gave, I know when I've gone out to dinner with potential clients, one of the things that repels me is if they're rude to the waiter or waitress and, you know, just disregard and disrespect people by their attitude, that really puts me off. Oh, yeah. You know, and it makes me not want to do business with them. Well, they have a status approach, you know. That's right. It's a higher and lower approach. That's right. Yeah. And they think if they're giving you the money, they can treat you however they want. Yeah. 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 And that's certainly not unique to young people. You know, that's the trait I've seen in some very successful people, financially successful people. And, you know, people are willing to put up with a lot of bad behavior if the person whose behavior they're putting up with holds out the promise of giving them some money. Mm -hmm. I never learned how to tolerate it, <laughs> you know, because there's other people out there with money who aren't assholes. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I was doing a podcast recently with Dean Jackson. He was talking about a comedian who got thrown out. He got thrown out of a nightclub or he got thrown out of something. And he was being interviewed about the incident. And he said, yeah, the number one problem in my life is that I've had the right to maintain silence, but I've never had the ability, <laughs> you know, that there is something about not seeing the world from another person's point of view. I think it's the hardest skill to pull off. And I mean it in this respect, that you can actually go to the center of another person's universe and then sort of scan in a 360 degree, like a sweep and still maintain who you are as an individual. In other words, you're not giving yourself over to that other person. You just have an ability to shift for a while. And, you know, how does this person actually see things, you know? And you try to find common ground with something that the other person sees that you kind of see it that way too. And you start, you know, establishing a relationship. Communication really means establishing common ground. Where's the common ground here? So why Americans talk about entertainment and sports so much because Americans are from all over, they've got different backgrounds. People make fun of Americans talking about sports, or they talk about pop culture and pop music. And I said, they're strangers to each other. They're trying to find common ground, and that's a good way to find common ground. So that raises a really interesting question. 
you and I grew up at a time there were three networks yeah. and maybe you had a local UHF station or something. And we were drawing from a certain reservoir that was, it wasn't so splintered. Audiences weren't so splintered. Now you can find whatever truth you want mm-hmm. online. The common experiences that we have has been so splintered mm-hmm. that what used to be a big audience that was aggregated for something, you know, those kinds of audiences don't happen on television anymore. Mm-hmm. So do you think that there is any relationship between difficulty in finding common ground and how splintered all the sources of information there are. Yeah, I think very much so. You know, there was kind of a golden age where you had sort of a common culture. It didn't matter where you were from, there was sort of a common culture. You know, people say, well, you know, it's because of such and such failure. I said, it's not such failure. It was just a matter of timing. And I think that it was that, first of all, Going from no networks to three networks was a big deal. (laughs) Right. You know, and I mean, television, we didn't have a television until I was nine years old. I was born in 44, 53 is when we had a television. First of all, there was enough talent, really top, top notch talent to fill all of television's time when it started. Yeah, you're often coming from vaudeville and radio. Yeah, and theater. And, you know, I mean, you had major, major superstars who were battling out for the same time zone on the three networks. It was just major talent. And I think where the splinter is coming about is that they've created more viewing opportunity than there is things to fill the opportunity. Well, and I think it's also because so many of us suffer from confirmation bias, we seek out sources, whether it's entertainment, news, whatever, where... It was kind of, I don't know if this is the right term, but at least easier to agree on facts. And then, you know, that didn't mean that we had the same solutions, but because I believe this ties into empathy in what you're talking about. Well, I think the common ground thing, you know, in other words, where is our common ground? Like we talk about anything and everything. I came up with that title because it struck me that it didn't matter what we talked about, we'd find common ground pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And you were right. You know, and I can say that probably, I don't know if I even have a handful of people in my entire life that I can say that about. doesn't matter what the topic is, we can find common ground on it. Yeah. We've read about it, we've watched it, we've done it. And some of it is that we're in our 70s and we're still cogent, you know, that... <laughs> And I think that is, but I think that there's a curiosity there that if it's new, hmm, I don't know anything about it, but it's worth looking into. I think curiosity is one of the main things that don't necessarily, but I don't know much about this. I'd like to know more about it. Like you read this book. I read, you know, the last book you gave me, I read one and then I read two more of the same person, Tim Wu. And now I have this man, Yun, Mr. Yun. But I want to check out, and what I find is that there's some similarities in people's experience. So when I was a kid, I didn't have any playmates until I was six years old, had nobody to play with who was my own age. My siblings were older and at school, and so I picked on adults. I picked on adults very early. And I had a question 
that I don't know where it came from, but I had a lady next door who was 78 when I was six, Mrs. Wetzel, who uh, had never been out of that house at nighttime in her entire life. She had spent 78 years in the same house. What was interesting, I got her with a question one day. I said, Mrs. Wetzel, when you were my age, what was going on? And she talked and she talked and she talked. And so I just kept asking questions about what she talked about. And what I found is that if you ask questions about experience, you know, you're here. How did you get from here to here? You'll find that there's a common human way that people get from here. There's things they're scared of. There's things they were excited of. There's things they're proud of. There's things that they were frustrated about. And you can always find common ground just asking people about their experience, except for the people who won't tell you their experience. They're telling you, we're not going to have any conversation, which is good to know really early. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it's interesting because, you know, I think it's incredibly effective to show interest in somebody else. Yeah. And showing that interest, which also I think leads or goes hand in glove with empathy, mm -hmm. is absolutely critical. There was an older woman in our neighborhood. She dressed up in men's clothing. And if you stepped on her lawn, she would chase you. And everybody was kind of afraid, but then it was also became a thing to do is like go up and knock on her door on trick-or-treat night because she would never answer the door or anything like that. And so everybody was scared of her. And of course, this whole mythology of who she was built up. And I saw her in her garden. And I decided as, I don't know, probably 10 or something. And so I just stood there and watched her a bit. And then she saw me and she came over to me and I didn't run, which is what we always did. And then she said, what do you want? She said, I, I was just wondering, you know, and you always chase us off your lawn and, and that kind of thing of it. I wondered what was going on with you and how come you wear men's clothes? She went down on one knee. I was, you know, a kid. And she said, my husband died. And my remembrance of him is wearing his clothes. And that was a really hard part of life for me. And I just wanted to be left alone. Mm -hmm. And when you kids would come by, and you'd walk or you'd walk in my garden. And she said, I was just trying to live my life. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm sorry. I never knew. And she said, well, you couldn't have known. Mm -hmm. But now you've asked. And now you know. Mm -hmm. And that deeply touched me. And then when we would be walking home from school, I'd say, don't walk on her lawn. Just let her be. And when I would see her from then on, she would wave to me. Yeah. It's not like we became good friends, but it was a big lesson that I learned. And because I also think that so many people are challenged with feeling invisible. And when you show interest in that person, it makes a huge impact on them. Mm -hmm. One of the things, because I'm very politically interested and I said, you know, even people that you totally disagree with from a political standpoint, 
I said, if you went into their experience and went to the center of their universe and you scanned, I said, everything makes sense from the center of their universe. I think that's true, you know, because I think it comes down to values, how you regard other people. And I mean, I think that's a big part of it. Or what you're frightened of, you know. Exactly. Oh, absolutely. You've just got very bad experiences in some areas. There's a very interesting writer. He's a, I don't know what you call that, geopolitician. He's not a politician, but his specialty is geopolitics. And there aren't a lot of them these days. And his two main interests are the combination of demographics, what makes up your population, how big your population is, what's the aging of your population in geography. And he has been writing a series of books, which are very fascinating because everybody, once the notion got out there because we can connect with people electronically very, very fast, that borders don't matter and, you know, history doesn't matter. And I said, well, depends on, you know, where you are in the network. But he was talking about Russia. He was just talking about Russia. And he said, you know, Russia is very flat. He says, very flat. For the most part, they don't have any boundaries like water, big water boundaries or big mountain boundaries that there's people on the other side that they're scared of. All the people they're scared of can get there by horse. (laughs) And he was just talking about all the invasions of how much Russia has been overridden by nasty, dangerous neighbors. And he said that they've always wanted to have buffers between them and people who could invade them and kill them. And he said, so he says, you have to understand the history He said, actually, he said, the only peaceful time that the Russians have ever had as a nation was the Cold War. He said, the Americans had no interest whatsoever in invading Russia. (laughs) Yeah. And he said, then on the other hand, he says, you look at the Americans, 3,000 miles of water one way, hard to get across, 4,000 miles the other way, hard to get across. He says, even with Mexico, you got 250 miles of desert that you have to get across because there's nothing really south of the border. And then he says, to the north, you've got mild manner Canadians. And he said, so the U.S. never really has to spend much time thinking about defending the homeland, you know, from outside. And he says, well, you have these two countries. And I mean, for all the animosity that you and I, we grew up with the Russians as the enemy and the southern there wasn't really any fighting, you know, for 50 years. There was no mm-hmm. real fighting because they aren't natural enemies. We don't share any border. We don't share anything in common, natural enemies. But what I liked about his book is he said, you have to go and get into the other person's history and live their history and understand what happened to them over a long period of time. And I'm fascinated at that because... I can sit and listen to people that I totally disagree with, but I can understand why they think the way they think. Mm -hmm. Which I think has become a lost art. Mm -hmm. You know, because we think differently doesn't mean that we can't get along. Yeah, yeah. And that there can't be a mutual respect. Well, and that there can't be cooperation and agreement on certain things. Right, Yeah. right. Because it's in all of our interests for that to happen. Yeah. It is really interesting. And I do think that that is 
a big problem that we as a nation have. But I think your splintering is really a very, very powerful thing that hasn't been talked about. Like when I bring up talking about your theater production, which is soon to open in Philadelphia, I was talking about Lloyd Price. And I talked to people, Lloyd Price, and I said, look him up. And you'll find page and a half of Lloyd Price, you know, singing and everything else. And he said, wow, he's a really good singer. I said, yeah, it was a big deal. But, you know, it was about five years ago that I had a piece of information that would have added to this conversation. And it was the touring bands in the United States in the previous year. Very interesting. There wasn't one band whose members were younger than 60 years old who were in the top 10. And I was saying, isn't that interesting? Everybody talks about the latest singer. Like, they bring up names of singers right now. You know, I've never seen that person. I said, I don't even know who you're talking about. And, oh, she's the biggest. She's the biggest. And I said, no, she isn't. I said, I'll tell you who the biggest was. You know, there were singers and performers in the 50s and 60s that were really big. And I don't care how big you think your person is. Relatively speaking, they're not big like people were big back then. Yeah. I said, when Ed Sullivan had Elvis Presley on, he got 60% of all television viewers that night. And the Beatles. That's right. I was just going to say. That was 80%. They had like 80%. I said, 80% is big. Yeah. <laughs> I said, having 3% of the biggest niche isn't big. Having 80% of the biggest niche is really big. You know, so the big thing is that the bigger your interests overlap with someone else's interests, the more you have to talk about. And I think that people have, you know, they've used social media in a very interesting way. I mean, I don't use it at all, so I'm only going on what I read. But what they've done is that they've created common ground that they can talk to people about. And then, you know, they have borders of who gets into the discussion group, who gets a talking group. So I think that there's a natural instinct to find common ground with other people. But if it's only about what can be talked about today, it's going to really limit the membership of the group. Well, the Ku Klux Klan has a lot of common ground with its members, <laughs> you know. And so I think that finding common ground that creates a greater sense of empathy because you understand we all want the same kinds of things. Yeah. You know, we want to feel safe. We want to feel protected. Everybody wants, and there's definition within here, but a good life and provide for their families and, you know, all that kind of stuff, which on one hand is a cliche, but on the other hand, it's very true because if you feel threats to that, that can engender a lot of responses that can divide us. Mm -hmm. So I think that that common ground is really important, but I would couple that with a genuine curiosity and wanting to mm -hmm. learn about the other person and their circumstance so you have a greater understanding. Yeah. When I go back home to Northern Ohio, I think I mentioned, but I've been invited back to my high school to talk to the entrepreneurs program during the school year. So it'll be either later in 21 or early 22. So next year will be 60 years since I graduated from this high school. I don't know how they found out about me, but I got an invitation and uh, I said, of course, I'll go back. 
But what I've decided to do is do a little bit of entrepreneurial history about the area you know, mm. that we grew up in. And I mean, Ohio was like the California of the 1850s and 1860s. Ohio was the powerhouse. And it had the greatest canal system of any state in the history of the United States. You could go from Lake Erie to the Ohio River three different ways through canal systems. It had the biggest interurban electric railway system of any state in the history of the United States. A lot of it happened in the north. You know, it was in the industrial north, Canton, Akron, Cleveland, you know, the lake communities, Toledo, and you know, I grew up about eight miles from Lake Erie. So I just picked up some people from the town of Norwalk, the Fisher Brothers, who created all the body work for General Motors for 50 years, were from the town I grew up. Yeah, Body by Fisher. Body by Fisher, yeah. Yeah. There were five brothers who started there. There was car companies in that town in the 1890s, 1910s. You know, there were couple thousand different car companies that all consolidated. And then Edison was from four miles away and, you know, his name after name. And so I said, this area has a huge entrepreneurial impact on the history of the country and everything else. So I'm going to talk to them about that. You know, Norwalk Truck Lines was the largest independently owned truck line in the world in the 1950s, a little town of Mm -hmm. Norwalk, Ohio. But from the East Coast to the Mississippi, they had 800 trucks that moved, you know, throughout the system. And, you know, and Akron was the rubber capital of the world. Toledo was the glass capital of the world. Right. You know, you had all these things. So I said, you know, you have to put things in context, but you have to know a little bit of history. And, you know, the people who started these were 17 and 18 year old people at one time who were looking at the world and say, where do I fit in? And, you know, what can I do? And I said, but this state that you're in has an enormous entrepreneurial history to it. You know, so just to tell them some things. But I wanted to tell them about that. But you got to know who you are and you got to know what the world wants. And I said, there's two things you have to put together. That's what an entrepreneur is. But you have to bet your life on it. And I said, most people aren't willing to bet their life. I'm putting those two things together. You know, it's interesting. I was asked to be the keynote speaker for my 50th reunion. Oh, wow. What I wanted to do is find that common ground. I didn't want to get political. I didn't want to look at those things that divide us. I wanted to look at those things that unite us. And, you know, you don't get to our age without taking some severe body blows. You know, whether it's the loss of loved ones. I mean, we've all lost our parents at this point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether it's a marriage that went bad, whether it was an addiction issue, whether it was a financial crack, whatever it is, we've all been through stuff, health, all this. And so I sent out a questionnaire. I wrote up about 25 questions about turning points and, you know, what changes have you gone through? What have you experienced? All this kind of stuff. And I kind of wove together this tapestry made up of the quotes of the people that answered the questions, which a surprisingly large number did, and a surprisingly large number had no interest in ever coming back to the high school or seeing those people again. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't realize how scarred some of the people are from that experience. Scarred by something. Yes, yes. Yeah, and you never know. I mean, I remember ones who never came back, 
you know, I was told about this because I touch base maybe every 10 or 15 years and everything else. But people, you know, who knows? But it's really interesting because I imagine it might be the same with you as it was with me is there's a probably 25%, 30% of that class that we went from all the way from kindergarten. Nobody went to preschool back then. (laughs) You know, we went from kindergarten all the way through high school with a significant percentage of the same people. Same with me, one to 12. Yeah. Same building, actually. Same building. Oh, really? Really? How large was your graduating class? Do you remember? Yeah. We started in first grade with 53 and we graduated with 58. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I would say maybe a difference of five, five or six individuals. I mean, parish school is Catholic school and the community is very Catholic. So I would say the population is probably half Catholic, but there were two complete parishes. There was a kind of German Catholic, Irish Catholic, and, you know, there was that, but... um, one Jewish family, <laughs> one black family. Uh-huh. That wasn't lost on me. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's interesting. We had, uh, I think, 408 yeah. was the graduating class. And we had a pretty good attendance from it. It'll be interesting. Have you been in contact with any of those people? No, I missed my 50th. So the next year will be the 60th. And I would go back for the, because, you know, they're probably dropping off now. It's a unique opportunity. I would not Um, pass it up. I was in the airport and the flight got canceled three times to Cleveland. And I said, "Hmm, I'm being told not to go back. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, It's not a main flight from Cleveland to Toronto. So it's a smaller plane and it just got canceled. But, you know, I don't believe the airlines, you know, I don't believe that. I just think they didn't have enough passengers to make it worthwhile. Mm -hmm. They found mechanical problems. Yeah. I think that that'll be fascinating for you. Yeah. And especially because of those that show up, there's a good chance that you went through most of your schooling with them. Oh, yeah. Whatever happened to them. You know, it was kind of an affable class. You know, what I remember, there weren't any outstanding negative things about it. You know, when I was 10 years old, my mother got me aside and she said, I just want you to know you're not going to grow up around here. She said, so as soon as you're finished high school, you're going to leave. You're going to go someplace else. You're not going to settle down around here. She says, so don't think about, you know, you're not going to get married and settle down. And three days after I graduated from high school, I was gone. Yeah. Why do you think your mom said that? Truthfully, I think it was I was her in male form <laughs> because she never told any of my other siblings anything like this. But I think I was vicarious. I think the word's vicarious. Mm-hmm. And we were great conversational partners. And I think she lost a lot when she encouraged me to leave home, that she lost a conversational partner. But it was important for her. But she really pushed me into reading and everything. She said, if you learn how to read, you can go anywhere you want with your brain. But the more I piece things together from talking to my siblings and everything else is that, you know, she was born in 1910. She was a girl. You know, what could you do in the late 20s when you're 18 years old as a girl? And so she did not want you to have possibly the lack of fulfillment that she experienced. Yeah, well, she wanted me to get out and do the things that she couldn't do. Right. Yeah, so I did. (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, of course, when we're young, we don't realize 
the kind of sacrifices sometimes our parents make for us. The thing that I appreciate more is just how incredibly good-willed my parents were. Mm-hmm. I've got three siblings in their 80s, and one just turned 70, and the other one is 68, you know, so we're pretty long-lived. But I know they they didn't get the push that I got. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I took her to Italy for three weeks when she was 75. And one night she said, you know, your sister and your brothers think that you got special treatment. And I said, well, isn't that the point? (laughs) (laughs) I said, I mean, do you want unspecial treatment? And I said, like they're complaining about the special treatment I got because I could take you to Italy for three weeks. (laughs) I had a teacher in elementary school and she said to me at one point, you want special treatment? And I said, well, yeah, <laughs> of course I do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Who wouldn't? <laughs> you know? Rule number one, I remember we went to Venice and uh, there's a famous hotel whose name doesn't pop up right now, but it's on an island and it's the endpoint of the Orient Express Railroad that goes from London. You know, it used to leave London, then you'd have to take a charter boat across the channel. Now you can, the train leaves London and goes all the way to Venice, but you still have to, you know, get off at the station in Venice and take a boat out to the hotel. So they had a a restaurant there. So the first or second night that we were there, I got a reservation and we went over and, you know, it was great. It was, you know, in line with the Orient Express and old European type of luxury. So it was still lira. It wasn't euros in those days. So we were coming back on the launch back to the hotel. And she said, do you mind if I ask how much did that meal cost? And I said, just a minute, because I had to translate in my mind, you know, what lira were. And I said, no, oh, no, $120, $130. And she said, you lead a different kind of life, don't you? And I said, yep. <laughs> and she said, it was a wonderful meal. And I said, Mom, you gave me the marching orders when, you know, I mean, I didn't say that to her. But I said, you're the one who gave me the marching orders. I'm just <laughs> carrying out my assignment. You have to appreciate, you know, the lives that people lived, you know, like parents, you know, you were 10, but what was life for them at 10? And you have to understand that you have to relate to people from where they come from, not where you want them to be. And by the way, your mom probably, you had seven siblings, was it? Six, yeah. So seven, including you. Yeah. And your parents probably fed the whole family for a month on what you spent on that dinner. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, that was so outside of her reality. The siblings are still bound in by a scarcity. They really have a scarcity about money. And and yet our generation is the wealthiest generation in the history of, of the United States. Well, you were born in 40? 49. Yeah, I'm a, the generation before, so I'm not a boomer. I'm the generation. And that generation from the late 20s to the end of the war is absolutely the wealthiest generation because it was the smallest Every generation right up until this generation that I was born was bigger because the country was getting bigger. But you had the Depression and the Second World War, and they didn't have babies. So 
when you got to school, there was more of everything than you could possibly need. When you got out of school, there was more jobs. So my whole life has just been about there's more than enough. It was just a demographic thing that happened. I think relatively the boomers are still the biggest one. The generation that you have are the millennials, right? Yeah, and I think there's Gen X. Mm -hmm. I think I can't remember. Gen X might be before millennials. Now there's Gen Y or something like that. But think about that generational thing. Like boomers, the first one's 46, and the last one is 64. What's 1946 and 1964 have in common unless you go looking for it? Yeah, not a lot. (laughs) No, but they're considered boomers. And I said, yeah, but, you know, that's an artificial. Exactly. I was actually in that discussion when somebody was like talking so specifically about how, you know, I think you were then silent generation. Silent, yeah. The silent generation, then the boomers. And, you know, it was all very circumscribed. And I said, do you know where that came from? I said, what? I said, where are those different demographics came from. It's a construct of advertising and marketing. Mm -hmm. So it was trying to target different groups. There's nothing inherently a baby boomer other than those, that artificial construct that it was from like 46 to 64 or whatever it was. Yeah. And because people treat it like it's science, it's not at all. And there are more that the generations have in common than different. Yeah. But, you know, there's all these things. I think it's so important to question the concepts of some of these things. And, you know, and that people actually think that's a real thing. Well, it's not a real thing. It was rather arbitrary in terms of how you divided what generation was what. I mean, boomers, maybe the boomers were really from 46 to 52 right after the war. And that's it. How come it extended to 64? Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Right. One thing that would make a very interesting future topic of how much all communication is actually metaphors. (laughs) Yeah, like all of it. Yes. Like even science is mostly metaphors. Well, words are metaphors in in all themselves. Words are metaphors for those things, but they aren't the thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's why, you know, when you're communicating, you're trying to find common ground. It's like, You know, we're not actually talking about the real thing here. (laughs) Well, that's right. I had a conversation that got out of control one night, and I was saying, well, you know, you talk about nature and the environment. I said, you know, humans created nature, created the environment. And they said, what do you mean? Well, I said, there wasn't a thing called nature until someone made up the word nature. (laughs) right. <laughs> there wasn't a thing called the environment until somebody made up the, we, we made up the word, you know. And I was telling him about, you know, the story in the book of Genesis is that the first skill that humans got from God, Adam got the right from God to name all the plants and animals in the Garden of Eden. And so I said, you know, and it was a six-day job because the seventh day is free day. So they're working and they're late on the night of the sixth day, and they're just about finished, and God says, what is that thing crawling out there? Crawling. He says, is it thing there? Yeah, it's crawling. He says, what is that, Adam? And Adam says, looks like a turtle to me. And God says, that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and by the way, do we have a toaster or a microwave yet? No, that's what I haven't come around yet. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 
But the big thing is that you have to understand that there's a fair amount of interpretation when you hear somebody what they believe in. You have to realize that they're describing something, but they're not actually describing the real thing. I mean, we don't experience the real thing because we have to create symbols, you know, That's right. representation. And that should allow you to have be a little bit more at ease with what people actually believe or don't believe is that, you know, there's, there's a bit of interpretation here that you got to ha- get a handle on. So when I was a kid, my next door neighbor, Billy Loudon, got a telescope. So he said, look through the telescope, you'll see Orion. And I looked through the telescope. Do you see Orion? I said, no, I see a bunch of stars. <laughs> he said, no, 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 look, you can see Orion. He looks back in it again. He said, so on the upper right is one shoulder, and then you see the other one dying. And he said, I just see a bunch of stars. And he got more and more agitated. And I said to him, Billy, I see what everybody has agreed to call Orion, but it's not intrinsically Orion. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bunch of stars, and we agreed that that constellation was Orion. But it's not Orion, it's a bunch of stars, but we have a compelling need to put order on everything. Yeah, we do. We're the ordering species, you know. And by the way, there's different mythology in different constellations depending on where in the world you live. Yeah. You know? No, I remember I've only been to the Southern Hemisphere once. I went to the Galapagos with Richard Rossi. He had a party that went to the Galapagos Island. And it was really interesting looking at the sky from the Southern Hemisphere, because there wasn't anything recognizable. It was all different stars, you know. And the other thing, the toilets go the other way when they flush. Well, I guess the most important direction is down. (laughs) You know, whichever way they swirl, just so it goes down. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, wrap-up time. We've covered a lot of ground here. But I think the empathy thing is just human relationships, period. But I think in the marketplace is that you really grasp where another person is coming from, you know, and you grasp it to their satisfaction that you're kind of getting what they are. And I think that, you know, there's a saying that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I think that's really the essence of it. You actually care that this is important to the other person. I think that you're right. And I also think that if you are creating something, be it a play or a product or some service you hope to sell, that you also need to understand what kind of person is going to need or desire this. Mm -hmm. And the only way you can do that is thinking outside of yourself into how someone else would view this and what are the advantages of that for them Mm -hmm. or to them. Yeah, that's a wrap. (laughs) This is fun, it's always fun. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today on our show, Anything and Everything. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. For more about me and my work, visit acreativecareer.com and madoffproductions.com. To learn more about Dan and Strategic Coach, visit strategiccoach.com.